with all that God has done for us, what a joy and privilege it is to be able to worship him. You know, God, and this is a beautiful thought, God is working for you. God is working for you. You may not see it. You may not understand it. But everything God does is for your good and for his glory. I want you to take your Bibles if you brought them with you this morning. Some of you use your phone, and I understand that. Um, I, I love being able to write notes and mark things in my Bible. And, and the book of Romans especially, where we're going to be this morning, and, and chapter 8, uh, again, uh, especially, is, is really marked up in my Bible. It's a special chapter. It is an amazing passage of Scripture that every Christian should be familiar with. And I, if you're not, I, I pray that you will. You need to study and understand this word from God. And you need to apply these truths to your life. We, uh, we need what God is saying here. There's so much included in this chapter that tells us about the work of God, which is his labor of love for us. Through his work, he shows us how much he loves us. Uh, J. Vernon McGee said about chapter 8, it is the high water mark of the book of Romans. That's powerful. Someone else has said when... We enter this chapter, we do so with no condemnation, and we close with no separation. And in between, all things work together for good to those who love God. What a beautiful, what a beautiful way of putting that. This chapter gives us great encouragement concerning the work of God in our lives. And, and Christians, we need to be encouraged, right? Amen? We do. We really do. I just ask you this morning, are you struggling with something in your life? Are you? Yeah. It could be a bad situation that you found yourself in. It might be even be some kind of sin that, that you're struggling to free yourself from. It, it might be some regrets that you have from your past that just keep popping up. Uh, could you use a little bit of encouragement this morning? You know, honestly, we all could, right? Every one of us needs to be encouraged. Thought a lot about that this week. And, uh, you know, I, I went to visit somebody the other day in the, one of the rehabs, and I actually went there to encourage them and wound up leaving encouraged. That's a beautiful thing when that happens. Um, the Apostle Paul certainly needed a lot of encouragement. He shares with us a, a, a lot about his struggles. I want you to look at what the apostle wrote in the last few verses of chapter 7. We're going to look at verse 14. Romans chapter 7 verse 14. Look at what he says. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. He said the trouble is with me, for I am all too human. I am a slave to sin. I, I love Paul because he, he's honest. He, he's open. He's very transparent. Now, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't tell us what his sin was. Right? Never he does he tell us that. Maybe that's so we're able to relate to him. You know, sin is sin, right? Sin is sin. We all have our sins that we struggle with. We like to cover them up and we like to 
put on a mask and make everybody think, oh, everything's good with us. But it's not. Tony Evans writes that it is encouraging for us, to be, for us as believers to know that Paul suffered from the same struggles that we do. We, we have all had candid moments in which we stepped back and said, I don't understand what I'm doing. Like, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? So, Paul wasn't innocent of sin. He makes that quite clear. He was a sinner just like you and me. Because of his sin nature, he struggled with some kind of sin in his life. I don't know what it was. Maybe he was addicted to Ringo's Donuts. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not picking anybody out here, okay? <laughs> Listen, uh, Jesse, our son-in-law, uh, brought us or sent us the other day four of those designer cookies. And I praise God there was only four. <laughs> two were for me and two were for Joyce. And, and, and Josh was quite specific when he pointed those out. He said, Papa, yours are on the outside and my, Nana's is on the inside. I can assure you that not a single crumb of my two was wasted or thrown away. <laughs> I can't say anything about Joyce's, but I can assure you that mine weren't. Listen, the, the cookies aren't really what is sinful. It's my desire for them, right? I, I have to be honest. I am not innocent in that respect. Well, Paul wasn't innocent of sin. And neither was Paul ignorant of sin. He knew better. You know better. I know better. We know better. He knew better, but he sinned anyway. So he agrees here that he's doing wrong. He just can't simply break free of his sin. You've been there, right? He wasn't ignorant of his sin. Again, Tony Evans asked this question. Was this because Paul was especially sinful? Well, probably not, he writes. But the closer you get to God, the more sensitive you are about your own moral failures. Show me a Christian who does not feel the pain of sin, and I will show you someone who isn't close to God. If your sin doesn't bother you, Friends, you got a problem. Paul goes on to write in verse 15. Listen carefully. He said, I really don't understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Again, I want you to notice here that Paul recognizes what so many of us Christians miss. We overlook it. He wasn't innocent of sin, and neither was he ignorant of right or wrong, but he was informed about his only source of help. You see, Paul understood that he was helpless to be able to resolve his own sin problem. Uh, we Christians tend to either ignore our sin as if it's not there, or we try to fix our sin problem with our own strength and our own ways. 
I want you to look at a statement that Paul makes here. And, and then he asks a question in verse 24. Look at what he says initially, the statement. He said, oh, what a miserable person I am. Can you relate to that? Oh, what a miserable person that I am. And then he asks this question, who will free me from this miserable life that is dominated by sin and death? Who's going to help me with this? If you go back and read this chapter, you can see that all the way through it, Paul has been struggling to pull himself out of this inner spiritual battle. But as if struggling with quicksand, the, the more he tries and the more that he struggles, the deeper he sinks. Self-help books and New Year's resolutions and, and, you know, all the positive thinking that he could do would do absolutely nothing to help him. It won't help you either. I really like what McGee says about this. He said, this is not an unsaved man who is crying, oh, wretched man that I am. No, this is a saved man. This is somebody who knows the Lord. He said the word wretched carries with it the note of exhaustion because of his struggle. Who's going to deliver me? <laughs> He's helpless. He's struggling. His shoulders are pinned to the floor, he says. He has been wrestled down like old Jacob. He has been crippled and he's calling out for help from outside himself. Why? Because he's at the end of himself. He's done all he can do. He hadn't fixed the problem. He's helpless. Listen, it wasn't until Paul turned his eyes unto the only one who could help him that he found some hope. Look at how he answers his own question in verse 25. What does he say? Thank God. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how he answered that question. Who's going to help me? One person, Jesus. Jesus. He says, so you see how it is in my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sin nature, I am a slave to sin. Friends, you have a sin nature. You do. It woke up when you were growing up. I don't know what age you were, but it woke up. And you're a sinner just like me. You're a sinner just like Paul. Now, here, here's what I want us to, to see about this next chapter. I really want us to see that all of chapter 9 shows us just what lifted up and encouraged Paul out of the mire and muck of life. I want us to see what helped him. Here's my thinking. My thinking is simply this. If it helped Paul, it can help you. It can help me, right? If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. That's what somebody said about the King James. If it was good enough for Paul, it was good enough for me. Well, Paul didn't have the King James, right? <laughs> no. He, but he had the Word of God. He knew what God could do for him. All of us could use a good dose of encouragement. So I want to highlight a couple of verses here. And I want to summarize two sections primarily in this chapter. Uh, this is what I've seen as I looked in and studied this passage of Scripture. He knew who to turn to and he knew why. Three thoughts. First of all, because of what Paul understood about God, he came to understand that Jesus 
Christ saves us from the condemnation that we all deserve. Did you hear that? He saves us from the condemnation that we all deserve. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Paul writes, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Have you ever considered yourself or referred to yourself in one of the following ways? Have you ever said, I'm just a sinner saved by grace? you ever said that? Have you ever said, well, um, I'm forgiven, just not perfect? All you have to do is hang out in church for a little while or be with some believers. And it won't be long before you're going to hear one of these statements, maybe both. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm forgiven. I'm just not perfect. They both sound good, don't they? But here's a huge problem. And the problem's with both of them. These are statements made without a complete understanding of our identity according to Scripture. It is so important for you to know that because when we do not understand our true identity, that's when we become prime candidates to be deceived and misled and even defeated by our enemy on a regular basis. Paul's favorite way of referring to you and me, to us believers in the New Testament, is that we are in Christ. In Christ. By the precious miracle of salvation, we have been placed in Christ. So what does that mean? It's critically important that you understand. What does it mean to be in Christ? Well, when you're in Christ, God no longer sees you simply as a sinner saved by grace. No, That is when he sees you just as righteous as the very Son of God himself. Picture that. He's not just seeing you as a sinner saved by grace. He's seeing you in the same light of righteousness that his Son is. Well, is that because we become righteous people or because we are righteous people? Somebody that gets along with everybody, somebody that gets along with God all the time, Is it because of our own righteousness? Absolutely not. Not. No. You're righteous only because that righteousness is what you have been given by the grace of God. When we think about righteous, that's who you are in Christ, not what you are. That is your new identity. Think with me about this staggering truth. I, I thought a lot about this this week. When you've been in heaven 10,000 years, we will not be any more righteous in the sight of God than we are right now, today. That's right. You're not going to build righteousness. It's already been applied to you. You say, Brother Randy, how is that possible? Well, there's only one answer. It is possible because we have been brought into Christ. You see, our righteousness Our right standing before God is not based on our performance. Praise God for that. I'd fail him every day. Our righteousness is not based on our performance. Instead, it's based on our position in Christ. We have been placed in Christ. Jesus is our righteousness because we're in him. There is no condemnation for us. 
We have been made righteous in the grace and mercy of God. To be condemned is to receive a verdict guilty for all humanity. What did Paul write in Romans 3.23? For all have sinned, right? And all fall short of the glory of God. In addition, death is the justifiable penalty for our sin. What did God say to Adam? He said, in the day you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? Die. Death is the justifiable penalty for our sin. He writes, Roman, Paul writes in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. We deserve to be condemned. We deserve to die. So because of our sin, we all stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. That, that is what Paul is talking about when he said, Oh, oh wretched, oh miserable person I am. Who will set me free from this miserable life that is dominated by sin and death? Friends, here's, here's a good thing. The beauty of the gospel is not only the forgiveness of our sin. That's, that's wonderful enough. But it gets even better. You see, the, the beauty is the pardon of our guilty verdict and penalty. We're already guilty. But we get pardoned from that. In Christ, we've been set free. I like that. That's a beautiful thought. It's like being on death row. Somebody walking in and said, you can walk today. You're free. You're not going to have to die for your sin. Vance Pittman said, any condemnation that I sense is the enemy trying to lay accusation where it doesn't belong. And the only reason I fall for his ploys is that I do not understand who I am in Christ. The greatest thing that you can do today is read what the Bible says about you and by faith believe it. Let his truth sink in and change who you are. My friends, I would say let, let the verdict of heaven stand. Let it stand firm in your heart. Find rest for yourself and encouragement in knowing that no sin past, present, or future can or will be held against you. Wow. Man, if that didn't wake you up, I don't know what will. Dr. Kelly Bullard said, When the light of Christ shines in your heart, the darkness is dispelled forever, and you are set free from sin and guilt and shame. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God that you have been saved in Christ from the condemnation that you deserve. We all have if we're in Christ, if we put our faith and our trust in Christ to make things right between us and God. John chapter 3, Jesus said there is no judgment awaiting those who trust him. No condemnation if you trust him. But those who do not trust him have already been condemned. They've already been judged for not believing in the only Son of God. The Father's whole purpose for sending Jesus to come to earth, to go to the cross, was to free us from the condemnation and, and that we deserve and to give us salvation. Friends, God was motivated to love us and, and to save our soul. He's motivated by love just to go out and save you. Condemnation only comes to those who say who who accept him. It, it, it condemnation, excuse me, condemnation only comes to those who reject God's love. Yeah. Again, Tony Evans said salvation from sin 
and, and judgment is free for the, for the taking. But if you reject the miracle cure that the doctor offers you, then don't blame him when you succumb to your fatal illness. Sin is fatal, folks. It's fatal. Jesus saved us to free us from the condemnation we deserve. But he also saved us so that we could enjoy the future glory that we don't deserve. Look, at, look with me at verse 17. Paul writes, And since we are his children, we will share his treasures. For everything God gives to his Son, to Jesus Christ, is ours too. But if we are to share his glory, we must also, also share his suffering. Yet, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that we will, we will be given later. The first Greek word for glory that's used here by, by Paul means to glorify together. Kind of a corporate thing. Hence, we will be glorified together with Christ and all the body of the redeemed. The, the church will one day share the glory of our Lord. Now, this second Greek word that is used for glory is the word doxa in the Greek. It means dignity and honor and praise. It is the idea that the state of blessedness into which we are to enter hereafter through being brought into the likeness of Christ. Let, let me show you what Jesus had to say about what this looks like. I point your attention to Matthew 13, beginning in verse 36. Matthew writes that when leaving the crowd outside, Jesus went into the house and his disciples said, please explain the story of the weeds in the field. If you're a farmer or if you're a gardener, this is going to uh, resonate with you. Verse 37, Jesus said, okay, all right, I, the son of man, am the farmer who planted the good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. So he's defining two very different groups of people here. Friends, both Christ and Satan sow their children in this world, those who do their respective wills. But that reality will not go on forever. The Bible says at the end of the age, the Lord will send his angels to reap a harvest of souls, some for glory, but others for agony. In verse 39, he goes on to say, the enemy who planted the weeds of the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds, the weeds are separated out and burned, so it will be at the end of the world. I, the Son of Man, will send my angels, and they will remove from my kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil, and they will throw them into the furnace and burn them. Wow. He says, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's going to be a lot of regret on that day. But notice verse 43. Then the godly, then those made righteous, those who are saved, will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. And anyone who is willing to hear should listen and understand. I want you to notice that the last words Jesus gives in this explanation, they're positive, they're beautiful, they're hopeful, and they're encouraging. 
We can draw encouragement from what Jesus said. He said, then the godly, those made righteous in Christ, by Christ, those who have accepted his righteousness and wear it like a new and shining coat, they will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. The Greek word here for shine is the word eklampo. It means to shine in splendor, to shine in glory, to be dazzling. One day God's people will shine with his gift of glory. Kind of like you look at me this morning. I'm shining a little bit. Going to be a whole lot more shining on that day. Some of you are going, oh no. God made a few beautiful heads. He covered all the rest. (laughs) Amen. I want you to look at verse 30 of Matthew chapter 24. Jesus said, and and then at the last, the sign of the coming of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens and there will be deep mourning among all the nations of earth. Why? There's going to be a lot of regret. What they didn't think would happen has happened and now it's too late for them to do anything about it. And they will see the Son of Man arrive on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with the sound of a mighty trumpet blast, and they will gather together his chosen ones, all of us who believe, from the furthest ends of the earth and heaven. Daniel says, there we will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness will be stars forever and ever. You're going to shine like the brightest light bulb one day. To give you an example of what that might look like, I want us to look at what Dr. Luke records in his gospel. Look with me, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. This will all be uh, recognizable to you. It says about eight days later, Jesus took Peter and James and John to the mountain to pray. Where are they at? The Mount of Transfiguration. I've been on that mountain. It's flat. Everything is flat where that's at. And all of a sudden, this mountain just jets up like a thimble in the middle of nowhere. It's a crazy ride to the top. Some of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. All those cutbacks, you go, you wind yourself all the way to the top. By the time you get there, if you weren't close to God, you will have gotten closer to God. Trust me. Wow. It says in verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. And his clothing became dazzling, white, glorious. This was so those three disciples could see his glory and understand something about his glory. The glory that they would one day experience. And it says in verse 30, Then two men, Moses and Elijah, two great men of God, they appeared and they began talking with Jesus. And it says in verse 31, they were glorious to see. Glorious to see. When Paul wrote the believers in Philippi, he said, Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct show that they really are enemies of the cross of Christ. Their future is eternal destruction. Their God is their appetite and they brag about shameful things and and all they think about in this life 
is this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. Did you get up this morning looking for Jesus? It would have been a great day for him to come back. One day he's going to surprise you. He's coming. Says he will take these weak mortal bodies of ours. How many of you know what that is? Weak mortal bodies. And he's going to change them into glorious bodies like his own. That means we will all have new bodies just like the resurrected, resurrected body of Christ. They will be redesigned and adapted for life in heaven. They're not going to need any more shots. They're not going to need any more Bengay. No more ice and no more chemo. Hallelujah! You better get in line because I'm going first. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. It is the same way for the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies which die and decay will be different when they are resurrected for they will never die again. Our bodies now disappoint us. And when they are raised, they will be full of glory. Full of glory. Dazzling. They're weak now. But when they are raised, they will be full of power. Paul writes, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the reality of heaven. Look beyond what you're dealing with now. Look to the future where Christ sits at God's right hand in the place of honor and, and power and glory. He says in verse 2, let heaven fill your thoughts. Do not think only about things down here on earth for you died when Christ died and your, your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your real life is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Now I want you to notice how Paul finishes up this middle section of scripture in chapter 8. If you don't have this marked in your Bible, you need to. He writes in verse 28, And we know that God causes everything, everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. What I found is that most believers really like the first part of this verse. But sadly, we tend to ignore the last part, which is even more important. Friends, God is working through the good and the bad in our lives for our ultimate good. But not so that we get to live, live on easy street here. No, he's working for our good according to his purpose and for his glory. So what exactly is God's purpose for our lives? Well, he promised. He promised he would shape us into the image of his son. He's working to shape us through all the good and the bad to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, his son. He wants you and me to become spiritual clones of Jesus. He wants us to be people who are the spitting image of Christ in character, in conduct, in attitude, in everything that we do. He says in verse 29, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to be like his son. 
so that the son would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him, and he gave them right standing with himself, and he promised them what? His glory. He promises his glory. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I am willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those God has chosen. Friends, the ultimate outcome of our salvation is eternal glory. This is temporary. That is forever. We need to keep our eyes on what's coming. Paul writes, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of highest privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Jesus saved us from eternal condemnation. He also saved us for future glory. But there's one more bit that's very important here. One more little nugget, if you please. Jesus also saved us so that we will never be separated from his love. Never be separated from his love. Uh, Paul asked a really great question here. He said, what can we say about this wonderful, such wonderful things as these? He's, he's referring back to the fact that we've been saved from eternal condemnation and for future glory. Friends, there's only one thing that I can say from my heart. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Sometimes we take God's grace and hope and, and love for granted, and some of us forget where it all comes from. But listen, if, if God had not sent and sacrificed his son on the cross, none of this would be possible for any of us. If, if God gave Jesus his only son to us, then why would he not give us everything we need, right? Why, why would he not do that? He's already promised and blessed us. And, and he's promised us this. Friends, everything that we need in this life and in the life to come is found in Jesus Christ. Would you agree with me? Amen. Jesus is sufficient for everything we will ever need. Look at how Paul says that. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't God who gave us Christ, also give us everything, everything else. God's work for you is truly a labor of love. It's an expression of his love. And praise God, he always finishes what he starts. I love what Paul wrote to the Philippians in, in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, I am sure that God who began a good work within you will continue his work. Until it is finally finished on that day when Christ Jesus comes back again. He's working for you. I told you he was. Bringing you to the image, the likeness of his son. That's, that's the same thing that Paul said back in verse 30. Now, what a staggering promise to us who believe. Amen. I want you to notice that Paul then launches into the most encouraging and victorious passion passage in this entire book this entire letter look with me at verse 33 i love this mark this in your bible who dares accuse us whom god has chosen for his own will god do that will he accuse us no paul writes 
He is the one who has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? Will Christ Jesus? No. For he is the one who died for us and, is, and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor next to God pleading for us. So God and the Father and God the Son in no way will condemn us. Verse 35, this great question, because, you know, we sometimes, we sometimes get people who, who, who want to push the issue that you can lose your salvation. You can be taken away from God. Look, look at this passage, verse 35. Hang on to this. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Listen, if you can be separated from Christ's love, you can be separated from Christ. It, it, the same thing. But notice what he says. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or if we're being persecuted, if we're hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? Does that mean he doesn't love us if we go through those kind of struggles? He says in verse 36, even the scripture says, for your sake we are killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. There are more Christians today dying for their faith than at any other time in the history of church. There's far more persecution in this world right now than you and I would ever imagine. You're blessed if you're not being persecuted. Now, let me say it another way. You're blessed if you're being persecuted. That's right. Gives you an opportunity to grow your faith. Can anything ever separate us from the love of Christ? He says in verse 37, no. No, all these things, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. Paul writes in verse 38, and we all know what he went through in life. I watched the video with the youth the other night, the latter part of Paul in Rome and the last thing that happened to Paul was he laid his head on the top of a post and a Roman soldier cut his head off. And yet Paul put his head down there gently and I'm sure he thought as he wrote, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't. Death can't. And life can't. Your death doesn't end his love and nothing you experience in life is ever going to separate you from his love. The angels can't. The powers of heaven can't. And the demons can't. The power of hell can't. He said our fears for today and our worries about tomorrow and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation, not even yourself, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Friends, I want you to understand that God loves you just the way that you are. Just the way you are. You don't have to clean it up, polish it up, powder it up you just come the way you are he loves you just the way you are listen to this statement 
Friends, never judge God's love based on the tough circumstance that you're in. But instead, always judge your circumstance from the perspective of God's love. Wow. God loves you unconditionally. Warts and all. Secret sin and all. He loves you. You need to understand that. So whatever you're going through right now, whatever it is, doesn't matter. God already knows it. Why? Because he's watching. He cares about you. He loves you. He sees you. He knows you. He understands you better than you understand yourself. And if you're willing to give him your problems, whatever they are, and you do what he tells you to do, then you will access his overwhelming love and his power and be more than a conqueror. You'll be victorious in the grace and mercy of God. God loves you. Oh, what a labor of love that he has for us. My friends, will you today Whatever your struggle is, be it a problem or be it personal sin, will you give it to the Lord? You know, the saddest thing about this service today would be that you brought those, those secrets and those problems into this service and then you take them home with you. You don't have to do that. You can start over today. Will you give him your problem? Will you give him your sin? Will you trust him to make things right between you and God? It's all up to you. It's free. You can take it or leave it. My prayer has been all week that God would do some changing in the hearts and lives of people today. Whether that's your need of being saved or your need of coming back to the Lord and recommitting your life to the Lord, I don't know what you need. But I'm guessing, because I know my God, I'm guessing you know what you need right now. Because he's revealed it. Will you let him continue that work in you that he promised to do? Will you? It's all up to you. It's free. All you got to do is come. Trust.